battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are in overtime. And like I said, we've got some great stuff planned, so thank you for sticking around with us, and we hope you enjoy the remainder of the show. So something of a theme over the last few years has been right-wingers making their cute little claims about being populist, about being working-class advocates, and all of that stuff. Or the working man, you know. So we pulled together some examples of just how quickly that whole thing just kind of falls apart if you poke it even a little bit. And then after that, uh, we are going to play a conversation that we had a great conversation. In fact, we had uh, with Adolf Fried Jr. It is a much more serious conversation, but it's, it is a fantastic conversation. So if you haven't already heard it, if you haven't already seen it, uh, or even if you had, listen to it because it is it is great stuff it is great stuff so hope y'all enjoy and that will totally absolutely be the end of the show after that there is absolutely not anything else happening after that point the show will end so definitely do not stick around after said Adolf Reed Jr. interview because this is not a Marvel's cinematic universe picture where there is a surprise ending after the end credits. Okay? You hear me? Do you understand what I'm saying here? Good. One of the many things in the omnibus bill uh, was the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and the Pump Act. Uh, Both of these support pregnant workers in different ways. And I actually passed along bipartisan lines, uh, amazingly. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act passed 73 to 24 in the Senate, and the Pump Act passed 92 to 5 in the Senate. Hmm. Um, so that's pretty wild. Uh, though, and, and so I just want <clears throat> to make sure that folks understand that for these bills that were all put into the omnibus, there's like two votes on them, right? There's the vote actually put it in the omnibus, or like to vote to show your support for the bill itself, like on its own terms. That's what these votes are for. These are, and so then after it gets put into the omnibus, after you've shown your support or, or a rejection for the bill on its own terms, then it does or does not get put got, uh, get put into the big omnibus bill, which then you take a vote on that as a whole, right? And so uh, these are the votes on the bills on their own merits, not attached to anything else. Pregnant Workers Fairness Act passed the Senate seventy three to twenty four. The Pump Act passed ninety two to five. 
What they do is the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act requires that employers provide pregnant workers with reasonable accommodations, such as access to water, <laughs> whoa, uh, increased bathroom breaks, and restrictions on lifting heavy objects. The Pump Act expands legally protected breaks for workers who are nursing babies. So these are very good things. They seem to me to be common sense. They seem to me like they would particularly be common sense for a party that says it's pro-life or that says it is uh, concerned with the health and well-being of mothers, uh, that said that, that, that's concerned with families, that's concerned with, you know, that's telling women that they cannot have an abortion, that they have to, they are forced to give birth. So it seems like if you're going to force somebody to give birth, you should at least like protect them while they're at work because like people got to work. Most people got to work, even if you're pregnant, even if you're a mother. So, uh, seems to me like that would be, uh, something that the Republican party would support. Uh, amazingly, actually both of Alabama senators voted for both of these two bills, which is, you know, wow. that's wild. Uh, Richard Shelby, uh, not known for being a populist, right? <laughs> this Richard Shelby, his, you know, his, his career in the Senate is now over. He is uh, not known for being a populist. That is not the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear Richard Shelby. And yet he voted for protections for pregnant workers, uh, as did Tommy Tupperville. And he's kind of, you know, he's kind of walking that line. I'm not sure he hasn't, I don't think he's really decided if he wants to associate more with the business Republicans or these business Republicans who are pretending to be working class Republicans, right? Um, He's also probably not very sure what the word populism means. And so that's probably need to one get of the back reasons. with you on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's probably one of the reasons that he's <laughs> taking a while to figure out where he's going. Uh, but um, you know who did not vote for both of these bills? Uh, populist working class Republican Josh Hawley, which is wild. He voted for the Pump Act, but he did not vote for the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. Which let's what does that do again? What does that do? Oh, it requires employers to provide pregnant workers with access to water, increased bathroom breaks, and restrictions on lifting heavy objects. So he voted against that, which means that presumably he doesn't reckon pregnant workers ought to have access to water. Um that their bosses ought to be able to force them to lift heavy things and that they shouldn't be able to take bathroom breaks. Uh, which is probably super healthy for the baby, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> what a jackass. A few weeks ago, The Hill said that Josh Hawley had emerged as a, quote, champion of GOP populism amid Trump's decline. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, separately, Cruz had said that, quote, I think one of the most consequential political shifts of the last decade is that Republicans have become, not are becoming, they have become a blue-collar party. We are the party of working-class men and women, says Ted Cruz. We are the party of truck drivers and steelworkers, says Ted Cruz. Harvard-educated fancy boy. 
And we're the party of railroad union workers, says Ted Cruz. <laughs> That's, that, I mean, this this really just shows you the idea. And well, every single one of these people, not a single Democrat voted against the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act or the Pump Act. Every single Democrat in the Senate voted for it. The only people that voted against it were Republicans. And yet they're the party of the working class. If they say it enough, maybe some folks will believe it. That's just bonkers. And this is not to say, obviously, I think, you know, if you listen to the show long enough, you're going to understand that we're not telling you, like, oh, be gung-ho about the Democrats and spend every weekend knocking on doors for them, right? That's not what we recommend you do. We, in fact, recommend you do not do that and spend your time doing something more fruitful like which in this case would be almost anything Almost else. anything, yeah, like organizing a union <laughs> or uh, taking a nap, you know? Self-care, um, yeah. Self-care, yeah. Uh, these are things that you could do that would be more helpful for the world than, uh, you know, knocking on doors for most Democrats. But um, we also particularly do not want people to fall for this scam about Republicans being the party of the working class. Right. Because one of the people leading this movement in the Republican Party Leading the movement of people pretending to give a damn about working folks is Josh Hawley. And he doesn't reckon that pregnant folks ought to be able to have access to water at work. Like, how, I mean, uh, what else do you say? That's bonkers. I don't know if you've got anything else on that, Adam, but. I I, just, I can't think of anything else to say other than that's crazy. No, I mean, just, yeah, I, I just would echo what, what you said about that. I mean, the Republicans are doing this posturing about blue-collar and working-class voters. And, of course, we could always add in parentheses white, right, mm, because right. obviously they're not too interested in appealing to non-white working-class voters. Uh and if you're not sure about that, just, I mean, pay attention to literally anything they say yeah. um, or the way they present themselves. But even beyond that, um, part of what's part of what's so, so insidious about it is, is is the entire premise is class as like a cultural affect and identity mm. and not actually a relationship to the economy and production. And that's where it gets very, very frustrating. And I think... Um, mystifying for people and you walk away from watching fox news and msnbc and and working class or blue collar it's almost like a, a cultural brand right. or you know it's like what kind of truck you drive and what do you wear flannel shirts and right. that kind of thing as opposed to okay do you work for somebody or does someone work for you yeah you know what's where do you sit in this economy are you a wage earner or do you live off profits and rents and dividends and interest? Yeah. Um, and so that's not the kind of that's not what they're discussing when they're talking about class. Um, they have tried to shoehorn working class into being a synonym for cultural conservatism. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh yeah, we're real blue collar because yeah, we also go to church and we also don't like those queers and weirdos coming out of the woodwork. Yep. Uh, never mind that I'm the boss and that I own this company, right. but I'm very blue collar. 
because uh, I wear flannel and I drive a pickup truck. Yeah. Yeah, a $50,000 pickup truck, yeah. Um, that that just has always irritated me, and I've always seen that a lot here in the South, like intersecting with the redneck identity, too. Mm-hmm. You know, you have those, like, fake rednecks who, yeah, they're, they're trying to portray themselves as these country redneck folks uh, in their $50,000 truck <laughs> right. and, uh, you know, several hundred dollar outfit. Um, yeah, it's just... To me, that's what it reminds me of. Right. It reminds me of the rich suburban kids that were play acting as rednecks. Uh, and they're doing the same kind of stuff here. Yeah. If you thought, you know, that the only thing Hyundai is doing wrong in Alabama was forcing 12-year-old children to work in manufacturing plants with OSHA fines for amputation hazards, your estimation of the morals of corporate executives is too high, actually. Last week, another lawsuit alleging racism at Hyundai plants in Alabama was filed, this time by five black men who alleged they were denied promotions, unfairly punished, and told to report to their, quote, master Oh my God! by a higher up in the company. Now, I say another because this is a second lawsuit brought against Hyundai in as many months. Last month, a black executive filed suit as well. And in this lawsuit, in this lawsuit, They say that this comes subsequent to an EEOC complaint against Hyundai from the same person. They say that Hyundai's argument in the EEOC case against the the accusations of racism is that the elevation to the executive team had, quote, had been, quote, nothing more than a tactic to counter union organizing at the plant, and that since the union threat had abated, she was expendable. So their defense was, no, we're not racist. Uh, We just pulled up a token black woman for a union busting. That's it. We're not racist. We just... That's all we right. were doing. They're just they're they're uh, race neutral union busting, and it just so happens that black people are getting hurt by it, right? I'm sure it's all a big coincidence. Here to talk to, to us about uh, this case and the other one. Uh, uh, here to talk to us about both of those cases that he is representing folks for against Hyundai is Arthur Davis, an attorney with HKM Employment Attorneys. Uh, Arthur, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it. No, thank you. Uh, good to meet both of you, and uh, good to join your program this morning. Thank absolutely, you. absolutely. So, I guess talk to us about this mo- the, the most recent one first, and then we can go to the one from last month about the you know <laughs> the insane the insane defense yeah. they had in this EEOC case. But let's talk about this one uh, the the uh, one that was filed last week, where um, and uh, on behalf of those five black men who allege, among other things, that they were told to report to their, quote, master. Talk to us about how they came into contact with you and what they and all of the things that they're alleging and and what they're looking for from this uh, from this lawsuit. Sure. So let me start by saying that these five guys are enormously brave. Uh, Frederick Coleman, Edward Daniels, um, Stacey Tremble, Jason Ingram. They have all shown an enormous capacity, and Jimmy Williams, they've all shown an enormous capacity for bravery just by filing a lawsuit. Mm. Four of the five of these individuals still work at Hyundai. 
Now, I want you and your audience to think about that. This is a lawsuit that alleges systematic retaliation, not just discrimination, but retaliation at the plant. So if you're alleging that making internal complaints, going to team relations, talking to your supervisors, if you're alleging that that gets you punished, that gets you demoted, that gets you written up, what the heck do you think might happen if you put your name on a federal lawsuit? So for these gentlemen, again, four of the five still work there. Literally two of them were telling me that they got news alerts about this case on Thursday night while they were picking up their cell phones to go home as they were leaving the ship. So it is amazing to me that these gentlemen, and it's noteworthy to me that these gentlemen have shown this kind of courage. So the lawsuit is about what I believe is a culture of discrimination and retaliation at the Hyundai plant in Montgomery. It's as simple as that. It's a plant where almost all the hard work of building cars and painting cars and assembling cars is done by African-Americans. And the overwhelming majority of that work is done by African-American men. But within this company, if you are an African-American, the more the job pays, the more power the job has, the less likely it is to be diverse. So Hyundai promotes black people to supervise black people on the front lines. There are plenty of black team leaders and group leaders. But when you try to move from that level to assistant manager, there's a dramatic drop off. But still, 30% of the assistant managers are black. But guess what happens when you move to manager? That drops down to less than 10%. Mm. And guess what happens when you try to move to the very prestigious role of head of department? Hyundai currently has, out of roughly 20-some heads of department, two are African-American and one of those was installed in just the last several months. Now let's go one step beyond that to the executive team, which is roughly 14 or 15 people who run the plant and make all the senior decisions. I want you to mull on this for a minute. In the last 17 years since Hyundai and Montgomery went fully operational, in the last 17 years, two black people have sat on the executive team, two in 17 years. Mm. Now, on top mm. of that pattern of not promoting and a rigid and hard glass ceiling for black folks, there has been a blatant pattern of retaliation against people who have the nerve to speak up. So this one incident where a white manager told a group of black people, oh, Master Swain needs to talk to you. The master wants to talk to you. That's he obviously just, thought that was funny. Deal. Right. He obviously thought that was funny. Well, mm. there is never, never has been, never will be anything remotely jocular about an institution that put people in chains and whipped them and disfigured them and discarded them for life. That ain't joking material. But these gentlemen complain. So what do you think happens after the complaints? After the complaints, a team relations official 
told several of the black men, three of whom were my clients, Coleman, Daniels, and Williams, they were told, watch out. There's a target on you. There's a red dot on you. And all the hunters listening know what that means. Mm. And they're trying to fire you. They're trying to get your jobs. All of these gentlemen have faced retaliation. One of them, Mr. Coleman, was told back in August, he asked, you know, look, I've been applying for promotions for several years. I'm getting good marks in my interviews. I'm getting good performance reviews. Why am I not getting promoted? You know what a senior official told him? You need to stop complaining and making all this noise and make management happy. When you mm -hmm. do that, maybe you'll get promoted. So this case is about getting some justice at the Hyundai plant in Montgomery. And we all know in the American legal system and this capitalist culture that we have, justice is measured by money. So we are seeking financial damages. We're seeking damages for lost wages because when these men are denied promotions, they're denied income that they're entitled to. But we're also seeking damages for emotional distress. One of my clients, and I won't name which one, but it's mentioned in the lawsuit, one of my clients has literally had to take the last two months off at work because of the pressure that he's under and the anxiety that he's under, knowing mm. that every day he goes to work, he feels there's a bullseye on him. Some people handle that. Some people, though, feel that stress and they feel that pressure, and that's wrong. And that's why the law awards compensatory damages. So- we are looking forward to litigating this case. I'm working with a very talented lawyer, Ivy Best, who's one of the most brilliant young lawyers I've ever worked with. Uh, we look forward to litigating these cases and the case of Yvette Yoki uh, Schufert that we filed a month ago. Yes, and and I, I think you mentioned this earlier, but I just want to underscore how you know even the the team leads or, or you know the the or the assistant managers you were talking about. There's 30 percent of black folks uh, or 30 percent of those positions are occupied by black folks. This is a this is in a facility that is 85 percent. The workforce is 85 percent black. And so immediately when you go from the front lines to just two layers above. You're looking at like a third of the people that are actually doing the work are being promoted. And, and you know, there's. And, and, and then beyond that, beyond just the statistical stuff that you've got, you have these. And, and one of the things that you haven't mentioned here, but that is in this AL.com article, is that one of your uh, uh, one of the people that you're representing said that he applied for a promotion. And immediately after that promotion, after he applied, that promotion or that open position was withdrawn despite it yes. not being filled. Right. Right. So right. There's clear like. We don't want, you know, there, there. It's clear by the numbers. It's clear by the retaliation when you talk about discrimination happening, and it's clear by closing open positions that are not being filled when the only people that are applying is black folks. Mm. Let me put this in perspective. Let's say that somehow Alabama was eighty-five percent black. Let's say Alabama mm. was eighty-five percent black. But let's say that every official in the state, every member of the legislature, everyone who held a senior position was white. That wouldn't be conceivable, right? Right. So that, that's sort of what goes on 
and the culture of Hyundai. But but let me talk about Yvette Gilkeshuper for a moment, because you asked me yes, how these please. cases came to me. I don't think that these five men, as brave as they are, I don't believe they would have come forward without Yvette Gilkeshuper being willing to file a charge of discrimination and to file a lawsuit a month ago. Yvette Gilkeshuper, I mentioned there are only in 17 years, two black people have been in executive leadership. Well, she was one of them. She was in executive leadership for four years. She was fired for reasons we believe of discrimination and retaliation earlier this year. And I'll be candid with you. They offered her a good chunk of money. And they said, if you'll just go away quietly, we'll write you a big check. And we may even say nice things about you to folks in the corporate world in the state of Alabama. She knew she had been done wrong mm. and she refused to take their money in exchange for silence. Wow. Because as you and your audience knows, when a company says to you, oh, we'll settle with you, there's always a price for that settlement. You will never talk about it and you'll never talk about the amount of money uh, that you got. So, and you know what the company will do. Internally, they'll tell people, oh, that was a nuisance case. We sold it for nuisance mm -hmm. value. So they're out there painting a picture that they gave you pennies to make you go away, no matter what they gave you, and you can't say a thing about it. Mm -hmm. That is the price of a settlement, and that, that's how things often work. But And many people say, you know what, I need the money, and I respect that. I'm a plans lawyer, so we negotiate plenty of settlements. But I give Yvette an enormous amount of credit. I promise you, if you knew the amount of money that she was offered, I suspect 95 out of 100 people in the state of Alabama would have said, you know what, forget this discrimination business. She was courageous enough to stand up. And once she stood up, it did get covered in the media. These gentlemen said, if this lady can stand up, we can stand up too. Mm. And some of the uh, let, let, some there are three instances that are called it out in the Yale.com article about hers, and and so we'll talk about the first two, which are pretty crazy, and then we'll save, uh, you know, the best for last, as it were, as far as the Union Talk Radio show is concerned. Um, one of them, she said she was paid fifteen thousand dollars less than similarly situated counterparts, which is pretty bad in and of itself. Then another one, she said that during a meeting, her she found that, or uh, as she was elevated to this, quote, director of administration in 2018, she found that her duties had been so pared back that a white executive, quote, joked that her, quote, primary role during team sessions was to ensure the coffee stayed hot. Yeah. That's insane. I mean, let me give you context for that. So the normal position of the normal duties of director of administration are you run vending, you run business relations, you run HR, you run team relations, you participate in all business planning. The HR function was taken away from her. The team relations function was taken away from her. She was denied membership in all the business planning sessions. So one of the few duties that she had left, her principal duties, frankly, were black political outreach and working with political folks like Congresswoman Sewell and the leadership in Montgomery mm -hmm. uh, and working with Quinn Ross, Alabama State. 
those were honestly her primary duties for a lot of the time she spent there that four years. Well, one of the duties left with her was managing vendors. Well, vendors include cafeteria services, and GLAD includes the people who provide the coffee for the executive session meetings. So one day the coffee was lukewarm, and the joke was made that uh, your primary duty is to make sure the coffee's warm. Wow. Because the vendors who supply the coffee fell under her leadership. Now, this is the reality. You have this position that when a white man held, her predecessor was a white guy mm. whose background was in PR. No disrespect to PR, right? We're doing your PR right now in a sense. But mm -hmm. uh, he came up in the ranks and was a PR guy who then they moved into management to give him some experience. He became director of administration. He had the whole kid and caboodle. He ran human relations. He ran team relations, participated in all the business planning meetings, has an undergraduate uh, BA. Well, when a vet gets the position, a vet has an MBA, a vet has been experienced in every major aspect of production leadership at Hyundai. When she gets the role, despite her substantial experience in her MBA, the position is downsized. Hmm. All of the major duties are sliced away. So all of a sudden, her being in charge of the people who bring in coffee does become a big part of her portfolio. That tells you so much about the culture of this right. company. Because right. any company that discriminates against people on the front line truly understand that that discrimination, that mindset is going to make its way up the food chain. And even the African-Americans who do manage to break through, they are vulnerable to being slapped down at some point. And listen to something, this is about women too. Yvette mm -hmm. Shuford is also one of only two women who've held a senior leadership role in the executive team. One of only two women in 17 years. Um, about a third of the workforce at Hyundai is female. But again, a fraction of the leadership is female. And that's not just black women, that's white women as well. Uh, Hyundai is happy to have blacks and women help build cars. They're happy to have that happen. But when you talk about putting people in leadership positions and you talk about putting people in senior roles and paying them real money, and yes, you mentioned the example of pay, that's a classic area of discrimination. But that truth, now get this, there are roughly 14 people on the executive team of the directors, the people who are director level, and there were seven of them. Only two of them had a terminal degree, head of legal, head of JD. She had an MBA. She was paid $15,000 less than the head of legal, even though a JD and an MBA are exactly comparable degrees. Mm -hmm. And she was paid seven to $10,000 less than the other white guys who held their positions. So she was mm -hmm. underpaid for four years, not given the responsibilities her predecessor who was less educated and less experienced was given. I call that a culture of discrimination. Absolutely. And one of the reasons that it, uh, that I think the article alludes to that some of those HR responsibilities might have been pared away um, was uh, was alluded to in the EEOC case that she brought against Hyundai before filing this lawsuit with you. 
Square during this EEOC case, and I, I called you yesterday because Adam didn't believe that we were reading the article right, but I called <laughs> you yesterday and confirmed that in the EEOC case, Hyundai's defense was that they only elevated her to kill a union campaign. So yes. they, they basically, you know, they got, you know, one of them kind of, right? They got somebody, from a, a black woman, elevated her to a position of authority. See, look how much we care about black folks, about women. And, uh, and, and that was, and, and they just said that. That was their defense. And so, so, so and, and one of the things that w was that, I, I think I remember the article saying that they thought that there were people at the ground level that were, maybe emboldened by her perhaps to bring discrimination complaints and so that's maybe one of the reasons why they paired back some of the hr stuff is because maybe she actually cared a little bit about the workers as an executive and they were like oh no we can't have that is am i reading that right you're reading it exactly right and this was breathtaking to me as a lawyer normally when companies file position statements with the eoc frankly it's usually very generic Mm -hmm. Literally, they spend the first two pages quoting from their HR manual. And those are the first two pages of the response, whether it's five pages or 20, those are always the first two. So I candidly expected the company to sort of stick to the story they gave Yvette Schufert when they fired her. They told her there was a restructuring going on. And I thought that they would say, yeah, we decided to do a restructuring and we're in the middle of doing it now. And I thought they might even say, and it wasn't just this position, it was several others. Now, we didn't buy that, but we right. were prepared to challenge it. But I'll be candid with you. I thought and I told my client, you know, that's what they're going to say. Well, right. lo and behold, in writing, they said, no, this was not about discrimination, not about retaliation. And it wasn't really about a restructuring either. We put Yvette Gilkey Schufer in this position, quoting their position statement, because we felt that elevating her would counter union organizing that was going on at the plant. Now we feel that the union threat, and that's what they called it, the union threat has abated. So it was no longer necessary to have her in this role. Now here's the oh, kicker. God none of her job had to do with countering union organizing. That was not a single line item of her job. Mm. So what does that mean that someone whose job had nothing to do with union organizing was put in the job to counter union organizing? Um, as the old folk used to say, Ray Charleston, see what that means. What mm -hmm. it means is that this company felt that elevating a black person as a token might appease the black people at the plant. And if you appease them, they're not going to want to join. And we all know the phrase they use, the union, as mm -hmm. if there's one union in the United States of America. They always say <laughs> the union, right? right. right. It's, also, it's not like they say the blacks. You know, mm -hmm. they, they, a lot of these same folks use the phrase the blacks, but they also will say the union. Well, they felt that if African-Americans said, oh, wow, now one of us is in a senior role, so we don't need to worry about this union stuff. And obviously they felt like it sort of worked. So they say in their position statement, it's an official government document, an official position of theirs now, <laughs> they say that they concluded that the union threat had faded, so we no longer needed her in this position. 
you can't even wrap your hands around what that means. From a legal standpoint, it means that they have conceded that race was a motivating factor in their decision, and we dang sure pled and argued that. But from just a moral standpoint, Mm -hmm. instead of saying, we put this person in a job because we trusted them, if they had said, you know what, this person wasn't performing, Mm -hmm. they might be wrong, but we would understand that defense. If they had said, well, we just concluded she wasn't doing the job she was hired to do. I told the vet, you know, I, I at any given time have 40 to 50 cases. Hers might be the only case that I have where the company's defense is not in some way, shape or form poor performance. And their position statement, they had not a negative word to say about her job performance. I can't tell you how rare that is. I've had clients who've had spotless records that they say, well, they had a good record, but they were late the two days before we fired them. They've been here for five years. They were late those two days. And you're sitting there saying, really? With Yvette, they don't even suggest there was a problem. That is so rare in these cases for them to admit no performance issues, no disciplinary issues, no infractions, but we just thought that we didn't need a token anymore. So goodbye. Wow. It's so egregious. It, yeah. It, it's yeah, it's a pretty shocking one. So it sounds like you're feeling pretty good about this one. Well, lawsuits take a long time. And I always tell my clients that cases can easily um, take three years to get to trial. Even if cases settle, that can often be a year and a half to two year process. And I always tell my clients If we go to a jury and we win, they're going to appeal. The Mm. appeal will last for another year and a half. So before you see money, it could be five years. These cases, and that's almost a whole separate program, it is shameless how long it takes cases to litigate in the American federal courts. But we feel confident that, first of all, these individuals deserve a champion. That's always my standard when I decide do I bring a lawsuit. Does my client deserve a champion? And then do they have facts that are meritorious that can stand up in federal court? I'm not telling you, Jacob, anything you don't know. The federal judges in Alabama are overwhelmingly pro-business. They're overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. conservative. um, And they have the mindset, understand what they mean federal judges. It literally requires an act of Congress to fire them. They have to be impeached. So they often can't relate to the notion of somebody being fired. They can't relate to the notion of somebody being told you've worked here for 19 years and now you have to go, as Yvette Schufer was told, because that can't happen to them. No matter how they perform, no matter how many times they're reversed, that cannot happen to them. Coming up on on the end of the show, we got about 45 seconds left, but... uh... But yeah, definitely a long road ahead, but uh, looking forward to uh, you making him pay, Mr. Davis. <laughs> well, thank you for giving me and my clients the time this morning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you. Just to start off with, you know, we all we all know what's been going on with the with the Crowder Daily Wire contract negotiation saga. Um, we reviewed the contract that um that Crowder was offered with a union contract negotiator. So that's, you know, that we thought that was a pretty interesting contrast there. Uh, we also talked about Candace Owens attacking Amazon workers for some reason in her screed against Crowder. Um, and so today 
and this is probably going to be the last thing we we talk about this with with this uh, with this saga. But um, uh, but I, I wanted to to react to this because I I found this Labor Day message that Stephen Crowder had a few years ago, um, and it's interesting because the. Uh, you know the language he uses is just pretty different than than what he's been using in this so- in, in this you know contract negotiation saga. And so just to remind people, um, you know some of this, a lot of this has been around free speech, but there was some you know issues that he took with the working conditions, you know the and particularly the amount of work that he would have to do under this contract. And so you know let's just remind people what he said about the amount of work he would have to do under this contract. Let's play that first Crowder clip. Don't sign something that has another $100,000 daily penalty if it's not signed off on beforehand. You get, a sick, you get hit by a car, you have a sick day, you could lose $100,000 a day. Anyone wonder why there's burnout in this? Anyone wonder why you have kids come up and they leave and never to come back? You think if you had that kind of a penalty, you think if someone said, hey, we're going to penalize you $10,000 every day you miss coming into work, you think you'd be stressed? This is worse than the left. (laughs) And so, you know, look, he's really upset about not being able, about the idea that if he misses a day that he was scheduled to work, he would get a $100,000 penalty. Now, a $100,000 penalty, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder how much, what that is relatively, right? Like, if I got a $100,000 penalty, that would mean that I am having to pay my employer for missing a day of work, right? That would be unfair, okay? And uh, and so, uh, let's put that in context. The contract offer was for $50 million over four years. Uh, and so, a $100,000 con- uh, $100, penalty... For missing a scheduled day, really doesn't seem that bad when you're th- talking about fifty million, five zero million dollars over four years. Not so bad. Also, not so bad when you consider that he the contract only had him working for four days a week. <laughs> for four days a week, almost certain. You know, uh, working is producing four daily shows, four show or one show every day, four days a week. That was the schedule. And so, you know, obviously this isn't going to take him, you know, 10 or 12 hours. These are not 410s or 412s. This is, in all likelihood, like four, uh, four fives for somebody like him. Maybe, maybe some of the people on his production staff would be putting in 410s or something. But not Steven Crowder, right? Obviously. And so, and, and, and on top of that, the contract allowed for four weeks of paid vacation, which is something that not a lot of working people get. And so, you know, he's talking about burnout because he has four-day work weeks and a four-week vacation. Obviously very silly. Very silly when you compare it to normal working people. The average salary in the United States is like $50,000. Most people, you know, do not get four weeks of paid vacation. You know, it's just, this is very silly stuff coming from him. And it's also silly... When you compare it to his past rhetoric, which is what we're going to look at today, this is a video that he put out on Labor Day three or four years ago, and we're just going to we're going to play this clip in full and react to it. So let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and start that, Adam. All right. 
Oh, hey, hello there. Me. Allow me to express an unpopular opinion for a moment, if I may. Labor Day, as a national holiday, is a scam, and I hate it. No, no, I'm not going to try and steal your get-out-of-work-free day. You can rest easy enjoying your barbecue and beer while your boss ultimately picks up the slack to keep your pay stubs coming in, all because some arbitrary holiday was marketed to celebrate the working class, and you now feel entitled to it. Okay, stop there. For picking so the here's... Seeing as I'm apparently the only one who knows... He's going through all of this about, like, oh, how bad it is that you have a day off. That you have a day off. For many people, it's unpaid. And for many people, actually, they're going to work today on Labor Day. Like, a lot of people. I mean, probably, what would you say, Adam, is the percentage of people that actually have to work on, la on Labor Day? Like, 50% of people, maybe? Have yeah, to that's a Labor good Day? question. That's I'd a like lot. to know. Um, I mean, because obviously, you're talking about the service industry, um, healthcare industry. Yeah. Right? There's so many folks that, that do have to work on, on Labor Day. Um, it's, yeah, I hate everything about the way this looks. Um, <laughs> it grosses me out. I'm not sure, you know, not sure what this look is about. Uh, yeah. But Free, so Free American said Hugh Hefner. Yeah, that, that's that's right, a good yeah. reference there. He's, he's going for this Hugh Hefner look maybe, and uh, you know, his little rifle up there. Um, okay. So he's, you know, the uh, uh, the idea that he's attacking working people who are not making millions of dollars every year for possibly getting one day off. While today, four years ago, he was doing that. And today he is crying and talking about how he would get burnout if he had to work four days a week and he couldn't just arbitrarily not work one of them with four weeks of vaca paid well, vacation. Well, I mean, and, uh, according to him, you know, if he missed work, his boss is going to have to work extra to right. pick up the slack just to make sure that pay stub comes through on time. Yeah. Uh, you know, might be worth mentioning that labor creates wealth and that's where value comes from. Uh, but, hey... It is what it is. Yeah. Let's keep going. Poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every first Monday of September. Seeing as I'm apparently the only one who knows that around here, allow me to explain my opinion. Now, Labor Day was created at a rare moment in history where unions actually served a purpose beyond bitching about six-figure benefit packages and determining which other members' tires they'd slash because of bullshit card check voting. See, that's because the Industrial Revolution, unlike the Agricultural Revolution, which preceded it, Okay, oh, yeah, just stop there, just stop there, because I want to I wanna remark again, here he is, <laughs> I mean, he's deriding union workers for, he said, he said bitching about six-figure payment packages um while he today is bitching about seven figure payment packages which and and just for the record many union people do not make six figures probably most probably most union workers do not make six figure and those who do uh in most cases do actually work for it. hard work yes um you know work that creates value for a capitalist, clearly, or they wouldn't be compensated as well as they are. Um, you know, I'm thinking about people who work in, you know, manufacturing, uh, people who do specialized trade work, uh, you know, hard work, 
work that required training, uh, work that requires a, a level of skill and sacrifice, uh, all of which are things I would not say about a, what would you call him, a content creator? Yeah, um, right. You know, and it's not to say there's not, like, work that's put into that. We put work into, you mm -hmm. know, bringing the show uh, to the airwaves every week, but... Come on now. Yeah. Oh, and actually, Sid in the chat mentioned it's an eight-figure paycheck that he's that he's bitching that's, about. That's not true. a not a seven, not even a seven-figure. He's in the tens of millions of dollars that he's that he was bitching about. And also, Free American in the chat says wasn't September chosen to get Labor Day away from May Day? And that's the actual that's the that's actual correct. factual thing, right? Is that Labor Day was was chosen to be in September to get it away from our the the real actual radical mil militant history of labor in the. United States and globally. Let's continue. With a select few people at the top and then a manual labor class in the factories who were working very long hours just to squeak out a living. Sometimes 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, Pause it! That's happening today! Today in union workplaces with and, and in non-union workplaces, but that's what we've been talking about with this paper mill. And so, you know, yes, some of these people get paid six figures, but they're working six, seven, uh, six to seven days a week, 10, 12, 16 hours a day. Same thing with the coal mines, same thing with these Kellogg's workers. And, you know, he's he is attacking these people. Yeah, this is an old trope uh, that, that folks trot out all the time when they're bashing unions. That, oh, they used to be needed, but now right. everybody's got it so good. Right. Back in the old days, you know, maybe there was a place for them, but, you know, we don't really need them anymore. And my question is what exactly has changed? Because last I checked, whether the years 1880 or 1980 or 2023, uh, we have a socioeconomic system designed around the pursuit of private profit. And that's how our production is operated and you have capitalists who are trying to squeeze as much as they can from their labor force and the fact that there are some differences now uh, bet between now and the industrial revolution is a testament to the struggle and the victories of working class people coming together to extract concessions from the boss and from the state um, yeah it's it's a um, it's a pitiful argument because, as you point out, any anything that happened back then, just about you could you could point to today. Whether that's the continued existence yeah. of child labor, the yeah. continued overwork of folks, the continued poverty of folks, the continued inequality. In fact, the inequality now rivals that of the Gilded Age. Uh, so, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll party foul. Yeah. Absolutely. That was an actual moment in history, unlike the fabricated one today from entitled leftist socialists who bitch that the American dream is more out of reach than ever because they might have to work a double shift at their retail job to pay off their gender studies degree that they think the taxpayers should ultimately subsidize. <laughs> also, Positive. notice that I said manual... It is more difficult to work a double shift at a retail place than to do whatever it is that Steven Crowder is doing right here that he's going to be making eight figures for. Okay. Yeah, and also statistically, the American dream is very much dead for for a large number of people in this country, and it's not because of a gender studies degree. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, 
if you're, yeah, if and you're it's not also, sure about that, right. just look into social mobility in this country. Also look at who holds student debt. The majority, the largest single degree uh, holders, the, 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 the largest percentage of, union, uh, of, of college debt is held by nurses. So, yeah. Laborers okay. and not working class. Because the idea that someone who owns that factory or today, someone who owns a business or happens to be an independent contractor is not working is absurd, insulting, and ironically, any intellectual. Think about it. The only difference between a lawyer, a doctor, an investor, or independent business owner, and the working class, as is the current nomenclature, is that the former simply work with their minds instead of their bodies. Does that mean that their work is any less valuable? I thought the left had the corner on intelligentsia. Or does that only apply to modern humanities majors who posit theories and philosophies that needn't yield results in the real world? But hey, okay, we can that just, just stop mirrors there. Marcus. Just really quickly, the I don't know what he's talking about, the modern nomenclature of working class, but the distinction between the working class and the owning class is whether or not you work to make a living, right? You, so you, <laughs> whether you work with your brain or your hands or whatever, if your subsistence comes from wages you receive for hours you sell, hours of your time that you sell to a business, you are a worker. You are a worker. You're in the working class. The thing that makes you not in the working class is if your money comes from owning. So small business owners, they might perform labor. Some of their work might come from labor time, you know, wages and things like this. But they, uh, but also, some of their money comes from profits, just from owning. And the more, the larger your business, the more that percentage of income ha uh, uh, creates for you. And this, you know, that that's the distinction: whether or not your money comes from owning or working. That's the distinction. Them to a T. After all, what gives the working class or proletariats the rights to have the government violently seize businesses and means of production from others outside of the fact that the very cerebral work required to create it in the first place is simply not valued in a communist society? While we're speaking of value, let's go back to the value of time again. Okay, so I, I want to keep this moving, but I just want to point out that um, capitalist governments sometimes do things violently. I'll Interesting. Just leave it at that. Today, most Americans are horrified to learn that in the time of the Industrial Revolution, many people were working 12-hour days without breaks. Because in the age of today, the average 34-hour work week, who would ever consider putting themselves through that? And that's where we come full circle. Today, while you enjoy your melanoma and corn beer, there are still plenty of people who work those kinds of hours without the benefit of a labor union. They're called business owners. You know, the <laughs> Okay, all right, yeah. Never, no, I'm sorry, but no, that doesn't count. I, I thought for a second there he was about to say something real, that, you know, there are people who are working their ass off and they don't have labor unions. and uh, Maybe, and maybe them, agricultural workers. That's exactly <laughs> who came to my mind. People who are sun up to sundown, uh, you know, picking crops in the heat, in the cold. Uh, yeah, that... Uh, that disturbs me, but I'm, I'm gonna keep it going. People you'll inevitably find time to vilify today between your hot dog eating contest and waking up in a boozy puddle of your own filth on some stranger's lawn, because while you- Also, that sounds a lot like projection. Yeah, um, I have never once had a Labor Day like that. 
I've never once had a Labor Day lie. And it's also worth mentioning the average 34-hour week. I don't know where he gets that from, um, but it's also— I would be more than happy, yeah. though, for us to reduce the full-time work week to 34 or 30 yeah. hours or lower. But, um, that, uh, yeah, I don't know where he's getting that either. Uh, we've got a lot of discussion in the chat that there's a video clip of him getting punched by a union guy. Um, please— Please send that to us. I <laughs> would love to see that today. Oh, have uh, you not seen that? I don't think I have. Really? You know, I stay away. Oh, dude, I don't a... see, you know, you know more about these creeps than I do. Oh, I yeah, don't, dude. you know, I, I purposely try not to know who these people are. Um, oh, yeah, it's big. It's so, big. yeah, I'd need to see that video. If you were taking the day off to play drunken lawn darts, they were likely working to make sure that the lights are still on. Someone yeah, has to make sure. sure that you can find your way when you tardily start stumble in on Tuesday looking for the Alka-Seltzer. Listen, enjoy your silly day off and have fun. My only point here is that Labor Day just highlights the gross mass generalizations that come from the left in the 21st century. Even though they accuse the right of being racist at every opportunity possible, it is they who exclusively separate and view people through the prism of sex, race, age, and yes, socioeconomic status. This classism is just another way to divide and conquer, turn brother against classism. brother, and to make you think that you're somehow owed something that only big brother can provide. So enjoy your Labor Day, and enjoy your weekends off and eight-hour work days for that matter. And yes, like How you'll generous. see in all the social media trends today, you can in part thank a union for those luxuries. Just know that they're afforded to you because of someone who enjoys None of them. Someone who doesn't have a standard weekend and has likely gone years of working tireless hours and borrowing money just to make payroll. So, okay, for your time off, benefits, and silly little end of summer holiday, thank a union. As for your job and the ability to provide for you and yours, thank a business owner. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just... Uh, absolutely wild to believe that, you know, the that describes the majority of business owners, that this is like an accurate depiction of, you know, the owning class as just this these workaholics. Right. It's absurd. It's I absurd. mean, there's basically a handful of families that control almost all the wealth in this country. Right. And you want me to feel bad for them. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of terms we could use for a person like that and the, uh, the idea that he used classism to describe antagonism towards the owning class you know class class struggle is a reality <laughs> whether right. you want to name it whether you want to talk about it it's just a, a reality of a society in which there's hierarchy and uh unequal distribution of wealth and power yeah. Does it doesn't matter if you want to acknowledge it. Doesn't matter if you want to talk about it or not. It's happening. So, and and it's worth just remembering that today Stephen Crowder is crying about not being able to willy nilly take a day off from his four day work week from his eight million dollar contract. And three years ago, he was admonishing working people for taking Labor Day off. We talked last week about the Death Star bill. That's what the Texas AFL-CIO is calling the preemption bill. 
in Texas that is overruling municipalities' ability to set labor protections. And we talked in particular about the fact that this is going to override uh, mandated water breaks in some municipalities, uh, which are, I mean, you know, amazingly, it's amazingly in the in in the um, in the vein that why would anybody have an issue with this? Um, but there were ordinances in a couple of municipalities in Texas that said that uh, workers must be given the opportunity to have a 10-minute water break every four hours. Um, and so in reaction to this absolutely crazy, woke, liberal, communist agenda to make sure that workers in the Texas heat have water, really insane stuff that these people are doing, uh, the Texas legislature signed a bill that's going to preempt municipalities' ability to do this kind of stuff and overrules it, So, meaning that these protections are no longer going to be operable in these municipalities and workers will no, will no longer have that protection to get water breaks. I mean... Uh, it's insane. But it does go beyond that. And so uh, David Griscom, who is who lives in Texas, he writes for Jacobin magazine occasionally. He was on the majority report yesterday talking about just how expansive this bill is. And so I took a couple of clips from that uh, 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 from his appearance yesterday. And so let's play this first one. Adam. This um, this this bill is on September 1st. Those local provisions in cities like Austin and Dallas will go away. Um, but it's so much broader than just the the water break issue um, that I you know I think it's really important breaking down what exactly this bill does because the water break thing you know is taking the headlines because it's so egregious and so clearly cruel and anti worker but this is everything frankly um, that, that that this bill um, covers so this was put forward by uh, Dustin Burroughs in the House um, Republican from Lubbock um, and it's a called a preemption bill. And uh, what that means is it basically preempts localities and local and city governments from being able to pass any kind of rule or legislation on um, things that state code covers. So we're talking about things like water breaks. We're also talking about things like fracking bans. Um, we're talking about environmental procedures. We're talking about ability to um, rule over health care, housing. Um, basically, it strips local government in the state of Texas from being able to govern. Um, and it's been presented as that. Um, uh, Dustin Burroughs was being interviewed by this right wing organization and he said it's really a stay in your lane bill and you know a lot of these local politicians right. will be happy um, because it means that the only thing that they're really going to have to be worried about doing is filling potholes and not having to answer big questions um, about governance and right right absolutely I, I totally agree it's it's taking local government to a point where you know it's like what is the mayor and city council's right. job at that point? Right. And um, of course, it's it's a way to squash local power. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easier to build power at the local level. It's easier sometimes to get reforms passed at the local level. Right. Uh, you know, especially in a state like Texas or a state like Alabama, where the state legislature is so you know tilted to the far right, and yeah. you know, thanks to gerrymandering and and various other reasons, they have a super supermajority um I, i'm not sure if they have a supermajority in texas in the texas legislature but obviously in alabama they do the republicans mm -hmm. have a supermajority here in our legislature and so um yeah for all those reasons people try to make their lives better 
at the local level. They try to work yeah. within their local communities, and um, obviously that's a problem yeah. uh, for Republicans in, in the state government there in Texas and, and in Alabama. Yeah, and he expanded on some of the motivations for this kind of stuff. Let's play the second clip and, from him. But if you look at like the actual opinion on a lot of these hot-button issues of Texans, the way that the Republican Party is governing is not in line with these things at all. So the only opportunity that Texans have to maybe push for a more a politics that's more reflective of their values and ideas has been on the local level. And that's why the Republican Party, they, they've been spooked by the potential of good examples, right? If yeah. working in Austin is better than working in the county outside of the city, oh, that might be harmful for Republicans politically down the line. So this is an attempt not only to deny democracy, but also a response to a threat that they've been feeling that if you know you can have more progressive politicians and policies in, in the major cities in the state, um, you know that might be threatening to their political power and legitimacy. I mean, and I feel like they might have lifted this a little bit from what is happening in Mississippi. I don't know if you followed that, but where um, the state legislature essentially di has disempowered Jackson from mm -hmm. doing a lot of things on a like local city level and is overriding the ability of state of cities and parts of their state that are more diverse, more non-white people, maybe more mm -hmm. of like organizing action happening in those areas and attempting to cut their legs off from under them it is the definition of big government that they're supposedly in uh hateful towards but it's um i mean I, it, and it also to, to return to your point about disempowerment how disempowering is this where you feel like you can't get involved on a local level in your city and try to advocate mm -hmm. for positions that are going to help you and that you're electing politicians that are supposedly representing you, but they don't have the ability to do so because of what Abbott and the Republicans on the state level are trying to do. I, I think those are really good points about that. You know, being being scared by by the potential of good examples is is definitely uh, you know that that's a a prime reason for overriding local control, and um, but of course, uh, this bill does not take away the municipality's ability to give tax breaks to companies to try to attract them to their municipality. Uh, it only <laughs> it only uh, inhibits their ability to protect the workers uh, that are going to be actually doing the labor for the companies that they're going to try to try to bring there. And and Emma's uh, definitely right that, that this is not just isolated to Texas. Uh, she mentioned Mississippi, and uh, we can hop over to the next state, to Alabama, to, to talk about uh, the exact same kind of thing. Birmingham passed a minimum wage uh, increase to 1010 an hour, I think. Oh, probably, when was that, Adam? Almost a decade ago? Uh, now that you say it, it, actually, yeah, it was back in 2015, maybe Jeez. 2016, somewhere in yeah. that range uh, when we were doing that organizing. Yeah, so it's uh, and and but Birmingham passed it before the organizing really took off here in Huntsville. Right. Yeah, right? Birmingham. Yeah. Birmingham led the way, and uh, there was a raise the wage movement there in Birmingham. They were able to push and push and get the city council and the mayor at the time to to agree to raise the wage in Birmingham. And um, yeah, raise the wage campaigns took off across the state, and mm -hmm. uh, I was involved a little bit with the one here in Huntsville. And um, yeah, I felt like as soon as we were getting some momentum, yeah, 
as as they pointed out earlier in the clip, you know, they cut the legs out from underneath us um, and banned cities from even having the ability to do such a thing. Yeah. Um, And similar with the Confederate monuments, it was actually a pretty similar track. It was Mm -hmm. like, okay, so a year or two later, a lot of the same people were all working on getting rid of the Confederate monument in, in Huntsville. And what did they do? They passed a damn law in the state mm. legislature saying you can't do that either. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's all about using state power in such a way to disempower everyday people. And, um, you know, that seems to be what's happening in Texas. And it's certainly what has happened here in Alabama and, and in Mississippi as well. I'm glad she brought that up. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And in terms of, you know, the economic development and the tax breaks and subsidies, I, I wonder if this would, pro, you know, prevent cities in Texas from doing something like a community benefits agreement. Mm. Right. Which is know. a which is a different tack to take when you're doing economic development. But you could have a community benefits agreement where there are things in black and white spelled out with the company mm-hmm. that says basically here are the strings attached to this project. Uh, it may be, you know, a certain amount of minority representation in the workforce. It may be setting up a pre-apprenticeship training program uh, to, you know, recruit folks and get folks in a pipeline uh, to be employed there. It could be environmental protections. Mm-hmm. It could be union neutrality. These are all things that could be in a community benefits agreement. And these are all options that local government could pursue if they wanted to in in economic development to say, hey, if we're going to give you a tax break or a subsidy or write you a check, uh, as they sometimes do, um, here's here's some ways we're going to protect the community to ensure we're not just, uh, you know, doing another corporate handout. And I I worry if if this bill in Texas would actually uh, take that option off the table for local government. Yeah, I don't know. It could. It very well could. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, uh, uh, David opens his segment with, with, you know, saying that he likes to try to write about, um, you know, these, these issues in a way that, uh, that, you know, explains how people can win. And, and, and so, uh, he wrapped up with, uh, uh, you know, a very similar message, I think, to what we, uh, promote on, on our show, which is, uh, you know, which is why we're such big fans of David. David's great. Um, and, uh, you know that that it's not hopeless just because you can't pass ordinances in your city uh that doesn't mean that you can't get water breaks and so let's let's listen to uh how david wraps up okay if the politics is blocked um right now it means that the fight has to go in into labor and you know just because these things are blocked on the state level doesn't mean uh, on the political level doesn't mean you can't win these things in contracts so for texans listening to this this means it is critical that you support the the or the institutions like the teamsters who are fighting for things like air conditioning and better protections for themselves support the nurses who are on strike here at ascension um and recognize that like even though the republicans might be able to control the legislature and the state government the vast wealth that is created in the state is created by the work of millions of texans and recognizing that you have a lot more leverage than you are told um and utilizing that to fight for yourself and your neighbors and your co-workers is the only way we're going to be able to get out of this this kind of crisis so no time for despair it's time to get to work yeah absolutely agree yeah, and I, I, I can't think of uh, anything else to say on that. So that's uh, that's as, as good a way to end that segment as, as any. 
We've got a great show for you today, folks. We're really excited about it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely excited to have Professor Adolph Reed Jr. on the show. Uh, I know he is a controversial guest, apparently, uh, I'm hearing, but uh, <laughs> I, for one, really uh, appreciate him being on the show. And as we get ready to bring him on, I did want to take a moment to share the description of his latest book, The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives. Uh, just to sort of uh, ground the conversation and to let folks know about this book, which I, I was a big fan of. So the last generation of Americans with the living memory of Jim Crow will soon disappear. They leave behind a collective memory of segregation shaped increasingly by its horrors and heroic defeat, but not a nuanced understanding of everyday life in Jim Crow America. In the South, Adolph L. Reed Jr., New Orleans, political scientist, and according to Cornell West, the greatest democratic theorist of his generation, takes up the urgent task of recounting the granular realities of life in the last decades of the Jim Crow South. Reed illuminates the multifaceted structures of the segregationist order. Thanks to his personal history and political acumen, we see America's apartheid system from the ground up, not just as legal framework or systems of power, but the way these systems structured the day-to-day -day interactions, lives, and ambitions of ordinary working people. The South unravels the personal and political dimensions of the Jim Crow order, revealing the sources and objectives of this unstable regime, its contradictions and weaknesses, and the social order that would replace it. The South is more than a memoir or a history filled with analysis and fascinating firsthand accounts. The book is required reading for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of America's second peculiar institution and the future created in its wake. So, Professor Reed, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, well, good morning, brothers, and thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. I got to tell you, like, I had to pause for a second. It's ridiculous um, to, to, to make sure that we aren't in the same time zone. And then I just uh, you remembered all those years of driving through the Grange, Georgia, on I-85 going from Atlanta to New Orleans, and I was reassured. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So some folks listening, I'm sure, are familiar with your work, but some not so much. Uh, you've had right. a long career studying and advocating for the working class. So could you introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about your work over the years, and in particular, why you have spent so much of your time studying the working class? Well, yeah, thanks a lot. Um, yeah, I'm not sure where to begin, although I was forewarned and had time to think about it. Um, but I'll say this, like I've, I mean, I, I, mean, I, um, I lived through, I was born in 1947, which is pertinent. And I lived uh, just about full time in the South from about a year after the Brown decision till um, the end of the 1970s, till the end of the first, near the end of the first year of the Reagan administration. And, and I lived between Arkansas, Louisiana, North Carolina, and uh, Georgia, and worked a lot in South Carolina during that same same period. So, I, so my personal biography, I guess, covers uh, you know, most of what's um, now called the Deep South. Um, and I grew up during the period, the last decades of the Jim Crow order, when, when it had begun to un unravel both internally and in response external pressures, though none of us at the time realized that it was un unraveling, or at least very few people did, and I certainly wasn't one of them. Um, why I've been interested in the working class? Well, I mean, I'm so 
Well, I shouldn't be coy. Like I came from a left-leaning family, so it was like natural, right, for me. Um, and um, I'll tell you something funny. When at, at the beginning of this century, uh, Michael Walzer, uh, you know, editor of Descent, approached me about um, writing something uh, for uh, an occasional feature that they had called "Why I'm Still on the Left," and I said, "Sure, I'll do it." And then I tried to write about it, or I tried to write it, and then tried to think about it. And I realized I didn't have any answers that went beyond, well, where else would I be, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, there's like, uh, in the words of, um, and I have to edit this, I guess, for radio, but in the words of an old textile um, organizer in North Carolina in the late 50s, you, you 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 either work for the MF, or, or sorry, you either own, own the MF or 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 you work for it. And right. I've never been part of the group that owns it. So, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I've always said my philosophy in life is that I'm not better than anybody else, and ain't nobody else mm -hmm. better than me. And that's yep. just sort of my approach. And, and I think that really, uh, you know, is. is something that resonates in your work as well and uh before we thank get, you before we get into the book and, and some of the themes there i i, I did mm -hmm. want to start with labor issues since we are a union radio mm -hmm. show uh yep. and i think you know we're experiencing this this upsurge or at least it seems like we're experiencing an upsurge with the labor right. movement uh we've got new industries like breaking into amazon and starbucks record pro public approval of unions and we've mm -hmm. gotten right. some militant reformers elected to office in the uaw the teamsters right. uh, the reform movements elsewhere so what do you make of this current moment for for labor well yeah it's an important question obviously i mean look i know there's some people out there who who think that i don't want you know, you know i don't want anybody ever to be happy right? but 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 the reality is no these are good signs these are all good signs they're that, that there's some not so good signs too, like what's happening politically, right? And with the Supreme Court, clearly, like uh, what I'm most recent and most recently in the Teamster case. The thing, you know, one thing I've been saying for a long time now is that progressive, leftist, activist, uh, um, whatever we're supposed to be, um, you have to stop acting like an advertising agency. By which I mean, we have to stop. Uh, and although I know people want things to feel good about and to feel encouraged, we have to stop this practice of proclaiming victories at, at the very beginning of a struggle, right? Mm. Um, and, and all these signs uh, that, that you mentioned and others are good and hopeful signs. Um, but, you know, the thing about the historic significance of something is that it can only be determined by the passage of history itself or playing out of the history itself, right? So, so there are good possibilities, there are important possibilities, and we should be encouraged by them as little openings that we can maybe build on and eventually get to building the thing that we actually need to turn the country around. Right, right, absolutely. I, I mean, I think at this point, after so many years of neoliberal domination, just little openings, right. these little openings right. are, are hopeful. Uh, what, right. do you, what do you see in terms of the South? What, what's our role, mm. you know, in this, in this working class movement today? Well, well, that's also very interesting. As you know, I mean, there are groups that have been calling for 
organizing the South for a long time. I mean, from one perspective or another, going back to Operation Dixie at, at the end of World War II, but more recently from groups like Black Workers for Justice and, uh, and uh, the Southern Workers' Assembly now, which is an interesting mm -hmm. formation to pay attention to, right? Um, and it's certainly been the case that if we can crack that, that nut, right, then we're in good shape. Um, but, and uh, like if you want to add to the left or to the list of uh, you know, little victories along the way, uh, and this is kind of tooting our own horn, but, but um, you know, we're in the Labor Party. We actually won a ballot line for a South Carolina Labor Party in 2006. Uh, and we did it by gathering more than 16,000 signatures of registered voters in the state. Uh, who uh, signed a petition calling on the Secretary of State to recognize um, a labor party. And what? And we worked mainly at flea markets and other places where working class people congregated, right? There's no point going to the, uh, uh, the, 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 the country, country clubs, clubs or right? whatever, yeah. right? Uh, but what we heard from a lot of people, right, without regard to age, gender, or, or a race, was that they thought it was about time that there was some group trying to make a political expression and official political expression in South Carolina that focused on the things that working people are really concerned about in their daily lives, jobs, healthcare, housing, education, and so forth. And that's the big thing, right? That, right that's a big point for us, that, that, or, or for us all to recognize like in the South. And, um, you know, I, I mean, these days, since I retired, actually a, a little before, since a little before I retired, I, I've been kind of splitting my time between Philadelphia and New Orleans. Uh, so, so I've spent a lot more time paying attention to Louisiana politics on a daily basis than I have in a long time. Um, and one of the things I've noticed is that in the same way that race worked for the planter merchant in investor class at the end of the 19th century uh, to drive a wedge between black and white workers, right? Uh, and r race combined with violence and intimidation and brutality, right? Uh, it kind of does the same thing now, uh, but, but, but in different ways. I mean, obviously, it, it, you know, a lot of the so-called culture war stuff, uh, it, you know, does that, that work, and I'm I'm often uh, given the sense that it feels a little bit now like what it must have felt like to be alive in 1895, watching this, right? Watching this shell game, right? That the ruling class, there I call them by their right name, uh, is trying to run run on all the rest of us, but by, by with, with this in, inflammatory rhetoric. You know, 1895 was the N word. Now it's kind of subtly the N word, but it's also stuff like, you know, I don't know um, the pedophile, cannibal, trans transgender, or well, school uh, you know, librarian. Yeah. Pro yeah. Professor Reed, one word that we heard yeah. last week from uh, one of Alabama's senators is inner city school teacher. Uh <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. Yeah. Bingo. And, and by the way, like, it's kind of interesting. Your listeners might, might find it interesting to reflect on this. Just when did school teachers go from being highly respected, right? Um, and and appreciated to being demons, right? But that didn't happen overnight. It feels like mm -hmm. it did. Uh, but but it was also the the, the uh, um, product 
of a long um, stealth campaign, and maybe not mm -hmm. so stealth, right? With, with 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 fat corporate interests who want to destroy government and public goods, cultivating politicians like your former failed Auburn football coach and, and others <laughs> uh, to uh, push push against this line over and over and over and over. Um, um, Gordon Lafer's book, uh, The One Percent Solution, which is the study of, uh, uh, of these corporate front organizations and their moves state by state um, to try to poison uh, uh, the well of collective goods is a must reading for everybody who, um, who, 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 who is interested in these matters. Um, but on the South in particular, right? Like I've said, I think I say this in the book too, that um, you know people often talk about what makes the South different from the rest of the country. Why is, why is, why is the labor movement weak, weak in the South? Um, and they talk all kinds of smack about, you know, Southern culture and this, that, and the other, hmm. uh, and, and, and natural Southern conservatism. Well, yeah, I have a much simpler explanation, right? And it's that the successful uh, defeat of the populist in, 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 in insurgency and disfranchisement of over 90% of black voters in the South but also, depending on the state you were in, um, say as many as a quarter to a third of white voters, kind of shifted um, the playing field very much in, in the politics, that is to say, very much in favor of large corporate interests and you know, you know, planters and, and in that class. And, and they got to rewrite the rules of government and, and of politics to favor their interest and and, and and exclude everybody else. And for all those decades that 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 the Democratic Party, what was the only party in in most states in the South, um, and it was an open question as to whether you know the Democratic Party was the above ground wing of the Klan or the Klan was the paramilitary wing of the Democratic Party. It probably changed on a changed on a daily basis. Right. There were there was no space, or there was very little space, for pro-labor voices to be expressed in politics whatsoever. And to the extent that um, a, a, a quote white and quote working class was able to express itself in in you know, politically at at all, it had to be entirely on terms that were defined by the ruling class. And that wasn't the case in states in many states outside the South, like in the industrial Midwest and in the Northeast, right? There were no, uh, very few, uh, they were very, very rare. Like the one that comes to mind is Mayor Fitzpatrick in New Orleans, who was mayor when the successful 1892 general strike happened, who, who, who fought for the workers. And by the way, it was an interracial strike uh, and succeeded, uh, but he stood with the workers against uh, the business community and the police and the state militia and the governor who 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 tried to break the strike with racist rhetoric basically hmm. but there was very little of that in in the region so well, when you think about 1929 and the great textile uprising of 1934 there were no local officials there who weren't on the side of the mill owners for instance right, right. so so like there was no space for um pro-labor sentiment to uh, uh, 
to to sustain itself. And then and 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 and, and again, almost all the southern states jumped on uh, the opportunity opened for them by Section 14B of the Taft Hartley Act that 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 uh, let them you know declare their states as right to work for less states, which practically all 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 the states in the former Confederacy are now, I believe. Uh, and that made it harder for unions, right? So, so the fact of the matter is, uh, uh, people in the South want representation, want rights on a job, just like everybody else does, right? But, 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 but the irony here, right, is, and like this, and like this connects with something else I suspect we may talk about later on. But the way that that the ways that how we talk about race. Uh, and how we talk about American politics have been separated from each other makes it harder for us to see that the move against nominally against blacks, but it was really a move against the entire working class at the end of the 19th century, is what created a political order in in the South that first of all made Jim Crow possible, right? But 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 also stifled the possibilities for the you know, development of the trade union movement right over the next century plus yeah there, there's a lot there that that jumps out at me honestly and and one of the things that is on my mind of course is, is alabama and you mm. know something I, i've shared on the show previously is that in, in my assessment we are living in the shadows of the defeat of those populists at the turn of the century yeah. and and we are still living with the 1901 constitution that was yep. enacted to you know enshrine white supremacy and the rule of the big mules, they were called, you know, the right. big wealthy interests yeah. who run this state and who still run mm -hmm. this state. Uh, and, and something else you mentioned that I was going to ask about later, but you, you brought it up about the Labor Party, uh, you know, experience mm -hmm. in South Carolina. And, right. you know, for folks outside Alabama, just for context, it's worth knowing that in Alabama, we are a one-party state. Uh, the GOP controls a supermajority of the legislature, the you know executive judicial branch. Um, we historically have always been a one-party state. It just mm -hmm. was a, the Democrats mm -hmm. for for most of that Good history. Point. The right wing yeah. Democrats. The right, right, right. right. <laughs> the right wing has always been in control, except for brief glimmers of hope during Reconstruction or the populist era. Right. Uh, but uh, so. As it stands now in Alabama, we have a situation where there's basically one functioning party. The Democrats don't even really exist as a viable second party. Working class people have no representation. 60% of, of the electorate doesn't even participate in elections. And I'm just wondering, you know, what those of us in Alabama could maybe learn from the Labor Party experience, uh, you know, that the national experience in the 90s, as well as the Labor Party experience in South Carolina, if there's anything there that you know, maybe uh, maybe we need to borrow from here in this current moment. Yeah. Well, um, that's a good question. And um, it might sound kind of odd because like, well, I guess the three, um, I mean, living people who were the most central um, in um, um, running the labor or, or, or in, well, I'm actually, I put this, at administering the day-to-day -day affairs of, of, of the Labor Party nationally uh, all would say the same thing now that 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 it was an important experiment we took our shot and we learned what what we could learn we obviously at some point are going to have to have some kind of political expression 
that um, represents and speaks for and uh, speaks exclusively for the working class, basically. Mm. Um, but 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 now is not the time to talk about trying to build one. Or, or but I guess the better way to put it is what the focus should be. And like this is what it was like for us at the end of the 80s and the very beginning of the 90s when I got involved was to try to um, build a foundation, right, within the institutional labor movement and one might say within other working class um, you know, institutions, right, such as they might might be, um, that could eventually develop towards something, some expression like a political party, right, or, or, or an electoral, uh, I mean, not even necessarily an electoral party, right. Right. But, but the key point is that no matter what the vehicle is, it's just as true now as it was when we started that, 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 uh, you know, that the Democratic Party is at best and inadequate um, or is at best inadequate as a voice for, for working people's interests and less and less so. And I think that's one of the lessons to take from what we've seen happen since 2016, like in American politics, right? Uh, that what happens when no political force addresses working people's interests and concerns directly it is that the door is left open for all kinds of dangerous forces to fill that void. And that's what's been happening. I mean, our founding brother, Tony Mazaki from the old oil, chemical, and atomic workers said this very powerfully on many occasions that if we as putative voices of a working class political interest can't um, produce credible interpretations of why people are suffering and 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 their lives are uh, um, and their living standards are uh, um, uh, falling and credible and credible approaches to trying to correct it uh, we we uh, we we I know the neoliberals can't and won't and don't care, um, and and that 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 will just leave the door open um, to these dangerous elements. So from that perspective, I think the most important thing for us now is to do stuff like you guys are doing, right? Trying to and but to do it also like in our personal networks because ultimately that's where you have the most influence, right? I mean, with people is people in your own I mean networks uh, and. And uh, trying to um, agitate and do worker education, basically political education about you know what's actually going on, how the system works, how to think about their own interests, right? And work with people, right? And and in the course of struggling with them around their own concerns. And I mean, a sort of um, unfortunate thing mainly, but it's got a couple of benefits. Is that we need to start out, I think, by saying that we don't have anything like that. Right. And and all the, you know, national organizations and the publications and stuff and the political groups who who purport, you know, to represent working people's voices don't. Right. Uh, and and that where we are, uh, I've often said lately, is that we're like at the, be uh, the very beginning of an organizing campaign. Right. So what we're trying to do, what would we need to do is like start trying to, uh, you know, in addition to whatever else we have to do to stop the bleeding, don't get me wrong, but we have to 
um, but what the task is trying to identify like-minded brothers and sisters, right, right inside, you know, the class broadly understood, uh, to function as a committee, right, uh, and to, to keep broadening the base because we don't have one, and and, and I mean, um, well, and I'll make a little plug for my friend Jane McAlevey, like in her penultimate, I think it's a penultimate book, no uh, shortcuts. She, she makes a very important distinction between mobilizing and organizing. Mm -hmm. And what that distinction c comes down to is that mobilizing is it, kind of getting people who are already connected with to do stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like to, to go vote or support a campaign or whatever. Where organizing is principally about connecting with people whom you don't already know, you, you don't already agree with everything about, and trying to broaden that base. And, and what we need is organizing now more than anything else absolutely and uh just a reminder for folks on the radio we're talking to professor adolph reed jr uh he is the author of the book the south jim crow and its afterlives which is uh part autobiography part memoir part uh history of the south you mention in here that you're uh really the the last age co cohort yeah. to have had a real a real memory of, of Jim Crow. Um, and, and I'm really excited to dig into this, but since we're mm -hmm. on the present and, and talking about the labor party and what it means and, and the political situation today, you know, a Adam, you, you have an experience more than me about, uh, the, the Alabama democratic party and the mm -hmm. Alabama democratic conference. And I'm, I'm wondering if we could go ahead mm -hmm. and, and tackle, uh, 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 tackle that question. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this is sort of connected to the racial politics that, that you were mentioning All earlier right. and, and that we can get into more when we talk about the book specifically. But, you know, there there are folks who live during the Jim Crow era and are shaped by that politically. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is a particular trend among a subset of folks who do have like a racial first politics mm -hmm. and they will you know i call it waving the bloody shirt right just like what you know mm -hmm. they used to do in congress for for the war of 1812 yeah. or whatever you know the civil war yeah. uh you know kind of wave the sh bloody shirt of the civil rights struggle and you know put that out there to defend what is ultimately basically conservative moderate mm -hmm. pro-corporate yeah. politics you know the type of folks like jim clyburn uh, and, mm -hmm. and that's representative of like the Alabama Democratic Conference, which is the uh, the, the Black Caucus here in Alabama mm -hmm. Democratic Party, you know, is very much of that mold. And, you know, I just I guess it's no coincidence that that tends to come from more middle and upper class black folks and not mm -hmm. working class black folks. But I'm just wondering, like, what do, what should we make of that? You know, uh, the, the waving of the bloody shirt of civil rights to defend right. neoliberal right lame politics yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well at first blush it seems really ironic especially for people who uh, i mean know the history but i gotta say first of all uh because i'd be remiss if i didn't do this but my friend kenneth warren my good 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 friend and comrade and collaborator and is one of the two people i was having conversations with that led led, led to this book ken always takes issue with our use of the bloody shirt metaphor. Okay. And I'll tell you why he, he uh, does, because its origin 
uh, I mean, interestingly enough, was from what, what were then called the liberal uh, the Republicans uh, in the 1870s, who used the metaphor to attack uh, those who didn't want to uh, sacrifice black rights to uh, to sort of getting beyond what they call the race issue at that point. Uh, so, uh, so like his point is that the metaphor wasn't ours; it was theirs. Th theirs that they used against us. Right. But anyway, right. Uh, but I just pass that on. It's no judgment. No, uh, no, but, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, well, yeah, because uh, he pointed it out to me when I use it, right? So, I mean, that's what the deal was. But, um, but yeah, well, see, I mean, here's the thing. Um, well, two things. One is a quip, and maybe the other will be a quip too. <laughs> Uh, but but the one quip is, uh, you, you know, when Thurgood Marshall uh, retired from the Supreme Court um, and um, and Clarence Thomas had already been nominated to succeed him. And at a press conference, uh, you know, reporters asked him what he thought about Clarence Thomas as his successor. And, and Marshall, who was always kind of irascible, but, but even more so as he got older, uh, which happens, said, uh, that when he was young, his father told him that if you're out on a road and see a black snake and a white snake coming at you, then you should kill the snake. Mm. Right. Uh, uh, so, and if if so, the other one is that my good friend and comrade in South Carolina, uh, Professor Willie Leggett, uh, a few years ago, um, looked at. Um, the political scientist V.O. Key's classic book, Southern Politics and State and Nation, that was published in 1949. And he sent me an excerpt from his chapter on South, on, on South Carolina and his discussion of the role that race played in South Carolina politics in 1949. And, and Leggett's point was that just by changing a handful of words, right, like in those passages, you could say the same thing about the role that race plays in South Carolina now, mm. but with and a difference would be that black political elites are part of the game game now too. So that um, a way we put it, and and this is my first plug, but 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 there's yet a newer book out uh, co-authored by me and my friend Walter Ben Michaels, who's like Ken Warren is a lit professor, called. No, no politics, but class politics. And it's a collection of our uh, um, essays and stuff over the years with, with some with four long interviews. But one of the points we make in that book is that just as racism has functioned as a vehicle to try to fool poor white people into identifying with rich white people instead of other poor black people, uh, contemporary anti-racism, right, no matter what it was in the past, but the way that anti-racist politics operates now is, is also a vehicle for trying to convince poor black people to identify with rich black people mm. instead of with other poor, poor white people. So, I mean, that's something to keep in mind as, as we think about, uh, you know, these formations like uh, you know, ADC and 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 a legislative black caucus in South Carolina and and, and its alternative in Louisiana. And on that point, I'll tell you that Leggett and I, for more than thirty years, have had a playful debate 
going on at, at as to which black political class was the more reprehensible, the one in Louisiana or in South Carolina. And, and I push ahead sometimes, and he pushes back ahead by them sometimes. But like Clyburn in 2016, mm-hmm. Clyburn and John Lewis, right, icon of the civil rights movement from Alabama, um, right. went went out on a limb to denounce Senator Sanders for advocating universal public goods, right? Like education, right? Right. Uh, And calling him irresponsible. And yeah, I mean, they definitely try to use PIMP, the civil rights movement, right? Um, As a way um, to justify what's an increasingly class skewed agenda or an increasingly blatant class skewed agenda that they push and, and, and try to call it a racial agenda. Um, and I mean, this is um, um, another point that Professor Leggett has made. Uh, and I just mentioned on, you know, on another podcast that if, if there were a Nobel Prize for quips, like this one would definitely win. But, but he said that the only thing that hasn't changed about black politics since 1965 is how we think about it. Uh, and everything is different. But when you think about how people want to talk about the stakes of black political activity now, it, it's it's always by reference to something that that makes them think about Jim Crow or makes them think about slavery, right? Uh, which is all, and that gets down to, to like removal of monuments and everything else. But it's all part of a more or less conscious effort to to insist that nothing significant has changed for Black Americans, uh, in or I mean politically or socially for that matter, since 1965, when in fact the reality is that everything that's significant has changed for Black Americans since since 1965. I mean it's a, it's it, it's an anecdote, but but I mentioned it in the book too. Like sometimes I'm out at you know like a Fats or a Chili's or whatever and see a group of black and white and often enough black, white, and Hispanic, South Asian, co-workers, friends, or whatever, together having a drink or, 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 or a business lunch or whatever. One, one thing that strikes me is that that's a simple activity that could not have happened mm-hmm. as recently as 1960, right? I mean, nowhere in the region, right? I mean, not in Alabama, Louisiana, South Carolina, Georgia, right? I mean, right. Well, I keep on going like a James Brown song. And, and I mean, that level of everyday interaction where people and 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 I'm not talking about love and brotherhood. I'm just talking about how people find themselves in social situations where they have to try to figure out how to get along together and make sense of one another and what and understand one another. And the whole point of Jim Crow was to make and yeah, look, I would not deny that Pitchfork, Ben Tillman, or whichever the one was in Alabama, I forget, uh, and Vardaman in Mississippi and all the rest of them. I, I won't deny that they were sincere in, 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 in their commitments, even a sometimes pornographically violent white supremacy, right? But the deeper point always was to keep black and white working people separate from each other and to keep them from forming the kind of alliances that the planter merchant capitalist class had feared from from emancipation to the populist uprising, right? From 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 
uh, you know, from happening again. And there were signs that they that they had something really to fear, right? The readjuster movement in Virginia in 1879, what was an interracial political movement, uh, ironically led by a former Confederate colonel, I think, that took state power and changed tax laws and property laws to kind of tilt the playing field back, back a little bit for working people. And um, you had populism in Alabama was like that. And, 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 it must, and, and in other states. So, I mean, and God, North Carolina, a populist, a populist Republican fusion government won state statewide in 1894, uh, and then won again statewide in 1896 by an even bigger margin, and that's what prompted uh, uh, um, the ruling class to launch a putsch, right, a violent putsch, and that happened all around the South. So, right, and for life, me. Right here yeah. in Alabama, yeah. same same thing. We won, yeah. you know, the people won in 1896, and it was stolen. And then mm. yeah, we had the 1901 Constitution imposed uh, by a you know fraudulent governor. And if I if I remember correctly, oh, oh, sure. there if I remember mm -hmm. correctly, there was uh, one of those uh, town coups in Alabama as well. You know, I think Wilmington, uh, North or South Carolina, mm. is really one of the North Carolina. Of the yeah, right. North Carolina is one of the more popular. Michael Jordan's ones. hometown. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the more <laughs> popularly known ones, especially right. kind of on the right. left online. But I, if I remember correctly, I, I think I've read about one here in Alabama. I believe in Ufala. In Ufala, maybe. Oh, where okay. There was a yeah. where there was a black government elected, and and there was a there was a white coup. Mm. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, and see, this is the thing I don't understand, man. To be honest, maybe you guys have a take on it. That what 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 we understand as progressive politics now. Right, it's all about denying that complex history, right? Um, like I was on a panel with historian um, Barbara Fields, right, at the Southern Historical Association meeting in Little Rock a number of years ago, and my talk was about this very issue, right? Like um, race, race, and the race, class, and populist uh, um, uprising. Uh, and when the panel was over, and making the same points that we're making here. And when the panel was over, like a woman in the audience, uh, apparently she was a certified historian, but but she came up to me afterward and wanted to catechize me, not in a hostile or or antagonistic way, but she wanted to catechize me about how populism failed ultimately because white workers were more committed to white supremacy than they were to aligning themselves with black. So I sat there, well, yeah, there was some of that to be sure, but but there was also, you know, violence, fraud, intimidation, murder, which like right. kind of changes the incentives for people. Adam, this she is, said to me, mm -hmm. that's a very familiar argument, isn't it, Adam? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. We've heard yeah. this before, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I'm sure you have. And and then she says to me, trumping, as it were. Well, there was that too. But the real thing was. So I thought, well, what kind of world do you live in, where like an abstract commitment to an ideology? has greater impact on you than being beaten and threatened with lynching. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but what's the point in that, right? And what does that do for us? And, and, and the answer that I've come to over the years increasingly is that um, by or by repeating the claim, and this is happening more and more and more in popular culture, right? And the reinvention of the civil rights movement and all the rest of that stuff. And I think you're getting a sense of some of the concerns that led to, or, or, or that um, came out of this conversation that led to the book. 
Um, but but they all seem um, committed to hammering that black people never have have any allies, and the only hope for black people is to do for self, basically. Uh, and that's that's not just a conservative line. That's that's a line saying that you can't do anything, and 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 what you need, and this is also familiar given Alabama, is like a single race broker like Booker T. Washington, right? Mm -hmm. Who's on good terms with the ruling class, who can get stuff for black people um, through some definition, and that leads to this observation that it's been interesting watching the so-called racial wealth gap become the key marker for Im improvement of Black Americans' social and economic position, right? Mm. Because among other things, right, not only disclosing a racial wealth gap, uh, once again, sidestep uh, the question of working in alliance with other people who, who, who are similarly placed right. Right in the society, but also, uh, and Matt Bruning's work at the Progressive Policy Project has been great on this. That that examination, so like most of the talk about the wealth gap, um, uh, proceeds from a formulation that the average black person has X amount of wealth, where the average white person has ten times as much wealth, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is, there's no such thing as the average black person, or the average white person. Right. There's no such thing as collective right white white wealth. Right. Like I, I mean, like lately I've been saying that that it's difficult maybe to think about black people like this because so much of us in American society now have been accustomed to thinking about black people like they all think with one 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 brain and all want the same thing, right? All the time. Like even though the black American population is larger than the total population of Canada, for instance. Uh, but maybe so, so if you think about a white nurse, right, who's unemployed and about to have her house foreclosed on, or her, or be a rick, or or be evicted from her apartment, can you imagine that there's like a reservoir of white wealth that she can go out to appeal to, right, what, right to get help help past our tough times, or you know, take a teacup to Elon Musk's house or one of them, <laughs> but and ask for some rent money, right, because we're all white here together? No, of course not. It's foolishness. And it's just as foolish about black people. And then it turns out that close to 75% of so-called, you know, white wealth is owned, is controlled by the richest 10% of white people. Mm -hmm. And and about 75% of so-called black wealth is controlled by the richest 10% of black people. Mm. And the, the bottom 50% of blacks and whites have exactly the same amount of wealth, which is zero. So if you right, close right. the wealth gap, right, uh, in between the bottom half of blacks and whites, 97% of the gap remains, mm -hmm. right? So so what closing the wealth gap is, is a program for narrowing the gap that separates the richest black people from the richest white people. And I've, I've talked to black union members about this, and they see the point immediately, right? That that, that the wealth gap has bupkis to do with them, right? And and we, and like, um, and pardon this, 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 another digression on the same point. Um, you know, since, since, uh, I'm sent you a quote from Senator Sanders before, 
I worked in both Sanders campaigns and and both times I had, as you might imagine, multiple experience of being approached by black people as either individuals or small groups that asked why Senator Sanders didn't have um, a race program or 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 why he didn't address black people's concerns directly. And whenever it happened, I did the same thing. I um, went down the platform item by item. And after each one, I asked, well, isn't this like if we won this, wouldn't wouldn't black people benefit blacks and Hispanics benefit disproportionately from it? Right. And now the real moral of this story is that that I had th this encounter with two kinds of people with working people. And every time I had it, what with a working person? And I'm not exaggerating here. I'm really not. Um, once I did what I did, the response I got was, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. It makes sense to me. Right. When I had that conversation with black people from the PM or from the professional and the managerial strata, right, right, the middle, mm -hmm. you know, upper middle class people. Um, first of all, they were more likely to ask the question with hostility. But secondly, they that they were much less likely to be persuaded by what I said because they weren't interested in mm. in an agenda of class-based re redistribution. Why? Because they don't belong to the class that would benefit from it, right? Right. Uh, and I mean, that's the key point, right? So I don't know. Well, and and uh, well, and another mm -hmm. illustration of that point is that that uh, that, that Sam Cedar makes regularly on his program mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. that he was on a panel with uh, uh, Don Peebles, which is one of the 10 wealthiest uh, black folks in America. I think he's a oh, billionaire. Wow. And it, okay. they were on a panel arguing about the uh, the estate tax. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as you <laughs> might expect, Don Peebles was opposed to the estate tax. He was mm. calling for its elimination. Right. And he was calling for its right. elimination on the basis of uh, the racial wealth gap. Exactly what you said. Oh, yeah. He said that this yep. is important in, you know, in uh, 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 <laughs> in continuing familial wealth among the black right. community. And, right. uh, you know. That, Which community? Right, <laughs> right? Like, right. I mean, specifically. Right. The, yeah, I mean, it's specifically the community of the Peebles family, right? right. I mean, we can say right. that, but it's certainly not something. It's not something that that black or white working class folks, or even, right. I mean, even when we're talking about professional managerial folks, you know, because the right. estate tax doesn't affect anybody that has an estate less than forty million dollars. Right. You know, so right. this is right. really the upper 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 tier of of anybody black right. or white or hispanic or whatever and the idea that that black folks should care about uh rich black folks getting their billions of dollars right. passed down to you know it, it's just it's absurd in the same way that i don't think that the Koch brothers uh children should get any of their money in fact i think all, all of it right. should be taken away but that's another that's another conversation yep. i guess yeah <laughs> yeah the, now something something that you're really touching on here uh and i wanted to make sure i mentioned this today is that the really the first thing i think i ever read by you was an article you put out in 1996 now i didn't read it in 96 mm. in all fairness so was a little before my time but uh that's the year i was huh. born wow um, oh wow okay old, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that yeah appreciate it uh i i was good and born by then but i so i came across <laughs> your piece uh i don't remember exactly when but it was you know early mm -hmm. you know my teenage years when i was waking up politically and mm -hmm. uh, had, had 
already seeing the disappointments of, of the Obama presidency. And you mm-hmm. pegged Obama back in 1996. I mean, you had him mm-hmm. pegged. Uh, I think you exposed the kind of vacuous, uh, empty, neoliberal identity politics that animates so much of, of the Democratic Party then and now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think what you were speaking to just now is that despite the fact that the working class is the majority, the working class is the most diverse class. Right. 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 So by definition, building working class power is building interracial people power. But there There is a concerted effort to make class invisible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, man. And um, that's been true since since at least the end end of World War Two. And and social sciences like in the U.S. played a very central role like in doing that. Like this is something else I'm writing about now. Like uh, partly I'm doing a multi-part column in, in a nation about how this 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 came to pass. Uh, but I'm also like the book I'm trying to finish now uh, that I got to get into Verso by the end of the summer is actually a study of this that, that we're calling when when compromises come home to roost. And it's uh, mm. and it's a study of, of the decline and transformation of the left since 1944, basically. But uh, but no, that's the key point. Right, the key point is making class in, invisible. Right. Uh, and and look, I tell you about the Obama thing, man. Like I've what I've gotten a lot of props over the years for having been pressing it. But 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 I've often said that I have two mottos in life. One is that it's often better to be lucky than it is to be good. <laughs> and the other is it's often, if not usually, more important to be in the right place at the right time and pay attention with a kind of critical imagination mm-hmm. than it is to be smart, right? And I just happened to be just whole, wholly out of circumstances. It was unplanned. Uh, in effect, in the birthing room, right at the outset of Obama's political career, I lived in that state state senate district, and and I worked closely with his predecessor in the office. And I was in the middle of the fight, uh, right, right over his uh, effort to replace him. So I got to see the whole thing, right? Right. So it's not like I was Nostradamus, right? I just got right. to watch. Well, uh, well, to watch the bullshit play out in front of you, excuse me. Right, uh, right. But, but yeah, I mean, it's clear that that was happening, right? And I mean, we could see it, for instance, in 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 other instantiations, like the emergence of Cory Booker and a whole mm. cohort of of black elected officials who uh, were groomed. Uh, in the foundation world, and often enough in the Broad Foundation and 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 Walmart and others. You know, it's interesting who, you bring up who Broad. charter school militants. Yeah, because uh, I cut my teeth as an organizer fighting against a Broad Academy superintendent here in Huntsville. Oh, so, here, here, you know, here! Excellent, congratulations. So, you know that's yeah. uh, you know. So I definitely know about Cory Booker. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Okay, I bet you do. Yeah, I bet you do. But see, the thing is, right, and. And this says something about how relentless their um, um, concern to, to consolidate class power is, and, and to de-democratize the entire society, mm. right? That they they didn't have any substantive problems with the with the previous cohort of of black elected officials, right? The ones who had come up through, you know, street street fighting ethnic pluralism like in in uh, local and state uh, I mean, democratic parties 
uh, I mean, especially in big cities. But the problem that, that they had with them, right, Michael, they did everything that they were supposed to do from the standpoint of big capital and foundations. But the problem with the broad types, or the problem that the broad types had with them was that that earlier group of politicians, which included Sharp, Sharp James, the, uh, the person who Corey succeeded in, 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 in Newark, what well, was having come up through regular democratic politics, they'd had to deal with public sector unions and with teachers unions in particular, and were inclined to give and take and to uh, negotiate. But what these upper class funders wanted was a ramrod who would come in and operate in totally undemocratic ways and impose their will. And that's where we've been for a long time. And I'll say this about Obama too, which is probably gonna make some people's head ex heads explode, though that's not my intention. But Obama was elected but telling us that because of who he was, and keep in mind, right? I mean, this is after uh, the Great Recession, telling us that by virtue of who he was, he would address our concerns and losses, right, right, after the economic crisis. And of course, he did nothing. But the who he was, was partly because of who he was racially, right? If you go back and look at his speeches and read his sad little memoirs, uh, right, I mean, you'll see that, right? He, he's got these statements about how, because I'm somebody whose grandmother lives on the shores of Lake Victoria, and I have an Indonesian stepsister or whatever, or half-sister. Uh, so a lot of people who voted for Obama naively or hopefully thinking that because he was who he said he was uh, or because of who he was, he had some magical way that he was going to deliver us, didn't. And guess what happens? Well, next comes a guy who is the equal and opposite version of, of Obama selling the same phony stuff. Um, but in, in an uglier way and, 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 and appealing more like the desperation. And that's where we are. Yeah. Adolph Reed Jr., uh, his book is The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives. You can get it online. Uh, it is a co-publication of Verso and Jacobin Magazine. Uh, really enjoyed the book, really enjoyed the conversation, uh, Professor Reed. We kind of, we weaved in, in and out of the book, I think. And so yeah. uh, we, we hit some of the topics tangentially, but it's a really good book. Yeah, I, I highly is. recommend folks getting it and, and checking out his writing in other places. Uh, really appreciate your time. Anything you want to leave us with before we uh, head into our final break and pay a couple bills before we're off the radio at 11? <laughs> Please, two kind of shameless plugs. Uh, one, what, 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 yeah, one I mentioned already is my new book with Walter Ben Michaels called No Politics But Class Politics. But more important is uh, the Debs Young Douglas Institute, which is the 501c3 created by the Labor Party. Podcast, it's called Class Matters Podcast. Org. And it's a, and 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 the tagline for our podcast is we're the place where we discuss what the country would look like if, if it were governed by and in the interests of the working class. And our most recent episode is a great discussion with uh, Jane McAlevey, who I mentioned before, and Gordon Lather. That's kind of around her new book, R Rules to Win By, mm -hmm. uh, about how to win bargaining. 
but but all of our episodes, uh, and that's the 12th episode, and all 12 of them connect directly with working people's concerns. So I urge everybody to check it out. And awesome. and we'll plug you guys too, of course. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I think and my last also... question is. Oh, well, uh, I was just going to say uh, that y'all are also part of the Labor yeah. Radio Podcast Network, which we are right. uh, very proud yeah, to yeah, be a part of. Yeah, definitely we are. And I, yep, spoke yep, to your, I spoke to your co-host on uh, uh, one of the meetings Catherine a couple weeks yep. ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, yeah, that's right. She mentioned that to me. So, uh, and, and, and and my last question, you can cut this, but those, uh, yeah, can you send me a link to, to, to the broadcast you recorded, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we'll do, we will do okay. that. And thank you so much oh. for your time. We really, really Oh, it's my pleasure. It. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. All right. All right. Take care, brothers. Take care. Yep. All right, folks. Uh, like I said, Adolf Reed Jr., The South, Jim Crow and its Afterlives. You can, uh, it's a co publication of Verso, Jacobin Magazine. Uh, really great book. He is uh, one, uh, he, he's in the last cohort of people to make it through Jim Crow uh, with, with actual living adult memory. Um, so I think that that, uh, uh, that experience is really worth understanding from the perspective of black folks. Uh, and, and it's fascinating. It's a great book.